Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. While it is difficult and time-consuming to get into software development, a lot of developers seem to think that once they have a job, everything is fine. And that could not be farther from the truth. You have a lot to do once you have a job just to keep from destroying your career, and let alone moving forward in it. In this episode, we're going to discuss several developer career mistakes that can happen to you, even if you are otherwise well-intentioned and conscientious. Worse still, you'll make at least some of these mistakes at some point in your career. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I found out Tuesday evening that I have to write a lead magnet for my book. So this is the you know the book on remote work, which you can preview that at Simple Programmer. You know, there's a bunch of different articles that I wrote that's basically the book content. Sorry for the shameless plug, but not really sorry. But I also have to write like the little deal that you give to people for signing up to the mailing list and all that kind of stuff. And so that looks like that's going to be the next thing I do, probably right after I get off of this recording, as a matter of fact. So I'm doing that. And now that my wife and my daughter are, you know, back out of the house, I'm trying to get my schedule back to normal because it's been kind of screwy since they got out for Christmas because, you know, you got other people in the house and, You know, your sleep schedule gets messed up, everything gets messed up. And so now it's kind of going back to normal. And I'm trying to figure out what I really want to have happen in the first quarter of the year and then build my schedule around that. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment is is thinking through more of the long-term plans on that kind of stuff. So how about you? Well, I finally got some foam sound panels for my walls. I'm going to install them this weekend or next so that the sound quality at my place should be getting better soon. I got the new microphone, which is a much better microphone than I was using. Unfortunately, it also picks up on the fact that I have barren walls and it causes an echo and stuff. So it's sort of a give and take. You get a better microphone that you can like move further out, but then it, it picks up the fact that... Uh, the other microphone was hiding things like that. Also, uh, <laughs> talk about career mistakes. It's wasn't exactly a career mistake, but it was definitely a mistake. I uh, blasted myself with 800 emails the other day testing uh, an app. I had added email logging for fatal errors. So basically, the app is running a bunch of different things. And instead of crashing the entire thing, if one of them goes down, then it will send an email saying, hey, this piece is down, the rest are running, or whatever. It was supposed to send one email, and it worked, but then I refactored and accidentally moved that piece into a loop. Yeah. Uh (laughs) At least it was running local in dev and didn't make it all the way to production before I realized what had happened. So how many emails did you blast yourself with? I said 800. You said 800? Okay. Yeah, that's been there, man. I think I've done that with several thousand because I did it and left for the day. Oh. So it it can always be worse. And I probably have a story 
of shooting myself in the foot worse. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's almost like a rite of passage. Like it's almost a thing you should do to yourself early on just so that when it happens the next time you don't feel bad. Mm -hmm. Ah, man, that's the pits. It wasn't terrible, but it was just annoying. It was like it ran for a few minutes and I'm like, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And uh, so I stopped it and switched screens and I saw like 800 emails. I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> Dude, I did one not too long ago sending out Microsoft Teams messages. Mm-hmm. So, like, when the server would have an issue, it, it would also put a thing out to Teams and it queues those. So it'll only kick, you know, like five or six out at a time and then it waits five minutes. Yeah. And I completely nuked that channel. Mm-hmm. And so it was doing it for days. Oh, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it was great. That sounds like a real headache right there. Yeah, so don't feel bad. There's always uh, somebody dumber than you, and sometimes it's me. Yeah, it sounds like a, a real headache there. But uh, speaking of headaches, we're kind of talking about that in uh, our chapter in book club today. So chapter five is titled Preventing Headaches and Eye Strain. Honestly, we could do an entire show just on this topic as it's been an issue for both Will and myself in the past. In this chapter, Joe Kuttner introduces us to a common cause of headaches in programmers called Computer Vision Syndrome, or CVS. Not the pharmacy. Not the source control tool either. (laughs) Yeah. The first section called Unit Testing Your Vision, talks about getting normal annual vision tests, and then goes into testing your environment to see if it is set up to cause vision and headache issues. He has you set up your normal work environment, then asks a series of questions, explaining the reasoning behind each one. In the next section, he discusses how headaches can come from a thing called middle-sightedness or focusing for too long in the mid-range of vision where computer screens naturally sit. Uh, While as developers, we can't exactly avoid looking at computer monitors, he does suggest several things to help reduce CVS. These include blinking often and taking breaks from your screen. Uh, The following section talks about headache triggers, including things like caffeine, MSG, aspartame, fermented things. For each one, he discusses the evidence behind why it causes headaches. In the last section before the retrospective, he talks about treating headaches. And this includes using relaxation techniques, lying down in a dark room, and over-the-counter medication. He also lists out some circumstances where you would want to seek professional help. Now, one of the big takeaways from this chapter is that monitors really should be 20 to 40 inches from your eyes, and they should not be brighter than the room. And there's more about that and how to test that in the book, which we'll have a link to in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we got an iTunes review from Recursive Noob saying, great find for an ancient noob. I got a BS degree in computer science almost 36 years ago in June of 1983. Between then and now, I've done pretty much everything that you can legally do with a computer. At the beginning of my career, I was doing scientific coding, 
basically code that was run from the command line to crunch numbers in Fortran and then later in C. After 10 or so years of that, I wandered, well, got dragged into system administration and other non-coding tasks. So now that I'm trying to get back into coding, doing some web development and some IoT work, I'm a complete noob and this podcast is perfect for me. The variety of topics is excellent and the depth of coverage for each one is just right. The two perspectives provided, along with examples of practical application to daily life, is very helpful. I only wish I'd found this podcast sooner. I'm currently listening to each new one as it's published and trying to catch up on the back catalog as time permits. P.S. I really appreciate the fact that these fellows don't use profanity, at least I've not heard them use any on the podcast, and that they don't strand into discussions of political issues. I love the name Recursive Noob. That's just such a great attitude, too. Yeah. You know, I, I really respect someone who has been in the industry for a long time and still looks at it as something new. I've mentioned one of my coworkers who, when I've been doing this as long as him, I hope to have his attitude because he just loves what he does. And he he comes into new stuff and wants to learn the new things because he just loves it. And just that that attitude is great. Also, when we first discussed podcasting, Will and I decided to make the show family-friendly. Uh, we wanted something that he could listen to in the car with his daughter. We also wanted one that stayed focused on developers. And that with the show, our aim is to help developers no matter their political views. You know, whether you agree with us or not, we try to... St- stay off of those topics as much as possible. Well, and they're not interesting. Yeah, not for what we're trying to do here. Yeah. So thank you so much for the great review. Send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com because we've got a Complete Developer Water Bottle just for you. And guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer Water Bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. And if you guys have noticed that uh, our comments and our feedback has been down, we're having some issues with spam and have had to take them down just to figure out how to block that because everything we have done has been, they're getting past it, basically. Yeah, and we're getting hundreds of emails Yeah, um, sometimes. It's the same one. Now, if you do want to talk to us, you could join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork dot com. So your advertisement could be here. Will mentions his book earlier and he's got a note here, point them at my book. So Will, I don't have anything else to go on from that. So you take it. Okay. So do you want to work remotely? Do you get tired of being a captive cubicle cattle? An instance of captive cubicle cattle that is, then you probably want to get my book. In this book, we're going to discuss how to convince management to let you work remotely, how to do it properly so that management feels like you are accountable, and basically how to sell them on the process both over the short term and over the long term. In addition, we also target management to talk about how to set up a proper remote work environment. So I think it's just really an all-around good book. And if you go to Simple Programmer and search for my name, Will Gant, you can find the articles there. You can actually read the entire book on that site, but it's you know it's going to take a lot more time to do that versus just getting on the list and buying it when it comes out. So please go check it out. Sign up for the list. Do the thing. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Do you have a link for how to sign up for that list? I do not 
offhand. We can put it in the show notes, though. Well, guys, you heard it. Look for it in the show notes. We will have a link to sign up for the list for Will's book so you can get information about that and uh, when it comes out. We've all been there. Some decisions we make eventually come back to bite us. The worst of these are the decisions that we didn't even know we were making or that we made for you know, more naive reasons. Sometimes you do things with the best of intentions that end up hurting your career, reducing the options you have available, or that even trap you in a dead-end job. A word of warning, both of us have done some of these at one point or another and suffered the consequences. We're not immune. When you have your head down and are trying to be productive at work, especially in a fast-paced environment, it's easy to make, and even worse, continue making, mistakes that hurt your career over the long run. When we say mistakes, what we're trying to say here is not intentional, stupid, destructive action that you take that hurts you. As an adult, we expect that you know what kind of crap you shouldn't be doing, and you're mature enough not to do it. Rather, we mean things that you do that cause you to paint yourself into a corner in your career, often for the best of reasons. These are subtle mistakes. You know, they're kind of like rain coming in through a hole in the roof. By the time you notice the damage, it's extensive and it's hard to recover from. We aim to help you avoid these types of career mistakes in this episode. So we have several mistakes that you could possibly make and things to look out for. First off is staying somewhere with no prospect of promotion. Unless you're already at the very top, like the owner. Yeah. And by the way, this doesn't mean a, a 1% owner, right? This means like you're in the board meetings, you own a big chunk. Yeah. just want to throw that out there. Dead-end jobs are everywhere. If you can't get more responsibility and more interesting work over time, it's time to start moving on. There's a lot of folks, especially in this industry, that will stay in a dead-end job for a decade or more just because that job is comfortable. I've known lots of them. The problem comes in when you stop learning and you start doing new things, you basically slide backwards. Your ability to earn a salary goes down. Oh, yeah. I've, I've talked to people who had let this happen. Like They got into development. They got a, a good job that paid well at the time, had good benefits. And they got comfortable, they had kids, they stayed because of the benefits and things like that. And then 10, 15 years down the line, they realized, hey, I'm getting paid a whole lot less yeah. than the people who are straight out of school, this is their first job, are getting paid more than me because you know this is where the industry is. And I have no skills that I can go out with because I've just stayed in the same thing. Like they got relegated to maintaining and doing things in that one area, which was easy and comfortable for them. And when they kind of woke up to it, it was like, oh my goodness, I've got to really scramble. Yeah. And it doesn't take all that long. I mean, I've known people that have been in a job for five years and this has happened to them. The job that I left in August, you know, the tech was kind of behind. We did some newer stuff, mm -hmm. but as far as front end development, like we were way behind. I had to retool. Yeah. And you think about how well I have marketed myself and how many people know who I am, you know, through this podcast and everything. And that was still a pain point. It took longer than it should have. It can really easily happen to you. 
it can really make it really hard to go somewhere else. You know, getting a new job, keeping that job can be a problem. So you get in and you find out that you are in way over your head because they're using, you know, five or six different technologies that you've never seen before Mm -hmm. versus just, oh, there's one thing I got to ramp up on and go on with life. That hurts. It's really, really difficult. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was talking with Amanda about this just the other day saying how I've been at my job for like that, that kind of that time frame where it's like, all right, you know, most people start kind of thinking about moving on and stuff. And she's like, yeah, but you said the reason that people do that is because they, they become stagnant. She's like, you're always talking about the really new cool stuff you get to do. Yeah. There's some companies that do a good job with that. The one I'm at now, I could stay there for a long time because they do that. But if you're not getting new stuff, and I think honestly, if you're, if you're wanting to grow in your career, like you're wanting to get into management, you're wanting to do more stuff and your company, like you can't get above the level that you're at because like the next level up is the owners, you're probably stuck and you should move on. Yeah. It's also really easy, even if you're using the newest tech to get kind of set in your ways. So like you might, you know, get used to a a shop that's got their act together, (laughs) you know, for instance. And if you lose that job and you go somewhere where they don't, are you going to be happy? Are you going to be comfortable? Can you even, can you even hack it? Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of them don't like you need to kind of have some uh, variation in there. I mean, we all want to work at the best places, but sometimes you don't and you've got to figure out how to get through that. Yeah, that's true. And the other thing is, is this can be bigger than just tech. It could be things like a group dynamics. So you may have, you know, people in your team that you are responding to. And like, let's say that everybody's nice or everybody's, you know, kind of one group of people and you don't deal with people that are different than that group. Mm -hmm. You don't learn how to deal with those kind of people. So like, for instance, like if all the people you're working with are graphic designers, when you get a new job and you go and you deal with a bunch of accountants, you're in for a wake-up call. It's a worse wake-up call going the other way, in my opinion, but uh, it's still pretty <laughs> unpleasant. You know, like, I mean, like you can get a culture shock because you think things are a certain way and you don't know that variables are variable. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's really bad to get stuck like this. And, you know, speaking of getting stuck, staying somewhere that refuses to use reasonably new technology. Yeah, that's another one that they can really get you. Speaking of technology, unless you intend to retire very soon, it's a bad idea to stay somewhere that doesn't use reasonably new tech. Uh, just like the the guy I work with, like he said, he's retiring in the next you know five or so years, but he still loves learning the new tech because that's why he got into it. That's why a lot of us got into it is because we love that. Yeah, it's it's so much fun, and so like like I said, that's the attitude I want. Now, there's certainly a place for being good at old tech, but there's also an opportunity cost with that. Yeah, so like if you're only working on exclusively old technology, you need to do so at a premium price, right? So like if the average developer in your area is getting paid, I don't know, let's say seventy five thousand dollars a year, which is low for Nashville, but you know, let's just leave it with that. If the average dev in your area is getting paid 75K a year and you're getting paid 76K a year, but you're working with old tech, that isn't enough. Because when you leave that job and you have to go retool, you don't have work for a while or you don't have good work or it's harder to get work. And so you're going to have to have savings built up. Otherwise, effectively, you got a lower pay rate just because that money's tied up because you've got to have an emergency fund. 
Yeah. While it can cost money and time to keep up with technology as a company, it costs developers a lot of money not to, as Will was talking about. And this behavior tends to extend to things like training processes and workload as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the tech that we have out there is, you know, theoretically built to be labor-saving effectively. Like our source control practices, like branching and merging, yeah, that's annoying. Like back in the day, we used to have stuff in folders. Mm-hmm. And you made a copy. And that's how you branched effectively. And it was awful. We've stopped doing that because it creates a lot more work. Companies that don't keep up tend to do a lot of that. They'll also not train you. Or they'll say, oh, we want more productivity before we'll train you. Or they'll defer updates to technology to a level where you can't update. Where it's just going to break the company completely. And so you're going to be forced to work on something that's 15 years old. Yeah. So like the person I was talking about earlier who had found herself kind of stuck at this job and we were talking about it, source control was one of the things that I was helping her to to understand because she was like, hey, you get this. And, you know, before source control was, you know, backing it up on disk. (laughs) I was going to say, you better get it. (laughs) But like, this is someone who's been developing professionally longer than you. Yeah. And yeah, she let herself get into that situation, but then she was working to get out of it too. You know, some of these are, that's the thing with these, some of these you may find yourself in now and you have to start, you know, recognize it and start working towards moving out of it. Yeah. I will say too, a company that's really, really behind on their tech, they're saving themselves expense right now. But what they're actually doing is putting the cost on their staff because their staff's jobs are harder. They've got to work more. And oh, by the way, when they go somewhere else, they've now got to catch up. You're not doing favorable things for your employees' careers. And that's a big deal now because people don't stay somewhere for 40 years. Well, the other thing they're doing is they're deferring the cost to themselves because eventually they're going to have to pay a premium to hire someone who can deal with that when everyone leaves. Or the person who buys and flips the company will. <laughs> well, there's that there, too. There's, <laughs> that dynamic is there too. <laughs> That's true. So speaking of buying and flipping companies, another thing that can be a problem is becoming a toxic team member. I mean, we talked about like, you know, that's a thing that's kind of toxic at the top, but at the developer level, you'll see this kind of dynamic that happens, right? Like every shop is going to have problems in their code base. The shop I'm working at now is one of the best run ones that I've ever worked in. And there's still problems in the code base. That's a fact of life. It gets big enough, you're going to have issues. Mm Mm-hmm. And the worst shops, we won't talk about how bad those get. Mm-hmm. There's this weird team dynamic, and I don't know if you've run into this as much yet, because um, I think it's a private sector thing. I mean, I know it's a private sector thing. I just don't know about public sector if this goes on as much. But you'll get like several developers that get together and they complain about the code base. And that's fine, because if the next action is to actually fix the problem, cool. But in private, at least what I've seen a lot of is where developers will get together and they'll complain like at lunch or whatever. And they are always complaining about the same things and talking about how it's never going to get better. Don't get in that kind of group because if it turns into that kind of continual complaint fest, you're better off just kind of stepping away from it. It's one thing to go, all right, Hey, this, this needs to be fixed or to complain about it, to get ideas from other people. Cause you never know, you might just be misusing something or you might be, there have been several times I've complained about something to Will and he's like, yeah, you're in the wrong there, bro. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or like, why are you using a screwdriver as a hammer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there have been times like that. And and he's I've done the same for him. But uh, the thing is, if you complain about it and then you make action to fix it, and yes, this happens in the public sector a lot. I would almost say probably more than the private sector because in the public sector, you have a lot of red tape to deal with. Ah, uh, yeah. So it's like, we want to go change this, but policies have been built around this broken system. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, I just couldn't speak for public sector on that, but I know in the private sector, it's bad. And being in a group like this is really bad for your career as well as your current job uh, for a lot of reasons. The first is, is that management tends to know more than you think they do. Mm-hmm. So they find stuff out especially from people like this, because the kind of people that sit around and complain about management, when you aren't there, guess who they're complaining about? (laughs) When they're in the office with with management, guess who they're complaining about? It comes back to you. And so you don't want to have factual stuff about you going around that is bad. Yeah. These groups also trend toward being thoroughly disempowering. They're always talking about things that are wrong and that will never change. And the problem is they have a defeatist attitude. Yeah, and it'll seep into you. If you're around that, I've had friends, like entire groups of friends that I've had to be like, look, I can't be around you. Yeah, you and I both cut off a group of friends because of that. And these were friends who were there for me through some rough times, but they just constantly had that defeatist attitude. And it's like, look, y'all, I'm trying to make something with myself. And you telling me that, you're not ready, you need to, to do this or do that. I'm like, no, I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. And so that can ruin you in the current job and it'll burn you out. Mm-hmm. But the other thing it does is if these are the people you're talking to, guess who refers you to the next job you get? Yeah. The same people who landed at an unsuccessful job. And people like this tend to have a string of those jobs. Mm-hmm. Right, Because the companies that will hire somebody like them have the kind of problems that those kind of people like to complain about. Yeah, They'll just, they'll go back to it. It, It's just the way they are. You know, like people get stuck in a script and you don't want to be stuck in there with them. Yeah. So the next mistake that a lot of people make is not having an emergency fund. Right. This is basically living paycheck to paycheck. If you (sighs) miss one paycheck or a small emergency, happens, you're broke. Um, Basically, you're already broke and you're just sort of... Yeah, you just don't know it yet. It hasn't hit you. I mean, I recently had to do a bit of uh, work on my car right before the holidays. And I had to dip into my emergency fund because, you know, I'd already kind of stretched myself a little thin because of the holidays. But that's why I have the emergency fund. Now that uh, the holidays are over, I'm going into replenish mode. That's what this time of year is for. I've actually done this a couple of times where my emergency fund was not enough money to not have to worry for a while. It was, okay, I can I can live real cheap and eat ramen, which I absolutely can. But the problem is, is that increases the stress level while you're doing that. Like actually cover your bills for several months just as they are without any adjustment. And that's a lot better. And what I found is, is that that tended to force me to be less picky about the jobs I took. And so the worst jobs I've ever had have all happened because I didn't have enough money saved up. 
because I picked something too quick. And I just can't recommend an emergency fund enough. The other thing is if you're asked to do something that's illegal or unethical, you need to be able to have the funds to be able to quit your job. I've been in several situations where I've had to refuse to do things that were either straight up illegal or were pretty gray area. And it's like, look, I'm not doing that. Get somebody else to do it if you're going to do it. But, you know, I'm not doing that. Oh, yeah. Not just that. Sometimes a company gets bought out. This reminds me, you remember back when I was in grad school and I was working for the one company, not in software development at all, but uh, they were not paying for me to go to school. But basically the position was a bachelor's level for what I was getting my master's in. And then they were going to have they had an open position waiting for me when I got my master's. Then the company got bought out, restructured, and I got moved into a management role with no management training, very little support. And after like a month or two of that, I was like, this is not what I want to do. And then they started fussing at me for going to class. Yeah. Like, this is a job I have while in school. Like, this is not be all end all school is, and you guys are the job I have to get me to a certain point. Yeah, this is the route to the vacation, not the vacation. Yeah. (laughs) I just turned in my notice right then and there. When they called me in to, like, it wasn't like a write-up, it was like a verbal warning or something about not being available during certain hours. I just handed in my notice and didn't have a job backed up. You know, I had a little bit of money and that was... I was like, I remember going to class the next day and telling my friends at school just, you know, what had happened. They're like, what's your backup? And I'm like, I don't have one. They're like, that, that's not like you. You don't leave a job without having another one lined up. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it was that bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I quit one job because they wanted me to come in and change the answering machine message, like physically drive into the office and change the answering machine message on the first day off I had had in four months. And that includes weekends, by the way. I was working seven days a week. First one I'd had off. And yeah, I just quit. I mean, I had another job by the end of the day on that one, but um, because I had a friend that had been wanting to hire me anyway. And so that was real easy. But if you're broke, it's really easy to convince you to do bad stuff or to push you around just in general, because you can't push back. You don't have anything to push off of. And this also means that if you should suddenly lose your job, you could easily end up having to get a extremely less than optimal job in the meantime. Uh, this can be a job that doesn't pay enough in an environment that you hate with people you don't like, way away from home, uh, you know, with an awful commute and no prospects of things getting better. One of the worst jobs I ever had, I had to drive over an hour to get there one way. And then they wanted us to work like 80 hours a week. Thankfully, I was hourly and it was right before I bought this house. So it actually helped, but it was like a really, really (laughs) bad three months. But you don't want to be in that situation. And jobs like that can also paint you further into a corner, right? Because if nobody wants to be there, the only people that are there are the people that can't be somewhere else. And so you'll be working with old tech. You'll be, you know, getting behind on your skills. You'll probably get more and more burnout. And this stuff can pile up on you really, really quick. I could go into a huge rant right now about the worst jobs I've ever had, but we'll just save that for another day. So along these lines, the very next one is leaping before you have a place to land. We kind of talked about times that we've had to do that and how having that safety net of an emergency fund helps. But um, 
you know, leaving a terrible job is a relief. Like when I did it, it was such a relief and I didn't know what I was going to do. However, doing so without significant planning and at least some leads on another job is typically a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, when you're out of work, you're going to be burning cash by the minute. And this can cause you to make other poor decisions as you watch the money run out. So like if you have car trouble, okay, now all of a sudden, well, what do I do? Do I take out a loan? Right? Like you can build up debt really quick that's hard to get rid of. It can also create a lot of interpersonal stress in your home, assuming you don't live alone. Inter internal stress if you do, I guess. You know, when you leave a job with no idea what you're going to do next, it's really not worth that turmoil unless it is extremely bad. Yeah, and I mean, by the way, this is true even if you're not living with a spouse, right? Like if you've got roommates and they're looking going, okay, is he going to be able to pay the rent next month? Right, like it'll build up and it'll create problems just out of nothing. It's a lot worse than you think it is until you've been through that. I just remember when we were in college and I was on a school trip when the company I worked for went out of business. And Will and I had already signed up for an apartment and everything. And he was like, uh, dude, are you going to be able to pay for it? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it seems like, wasn't that like over Christmas or something? Or was that a different time? Oh, no, no. So the, the Christmas time was I got snowed in at my parents' house and okay. wasn't going to be able to make it down to pay the rent. And I called them. And they didn't answer because they weren't there either. No, no, no. I had called them and they said it's not a problem. But when you called them because you were worried about it, they didn't answer because they had closed early because of the snow. Yeah. <laughs> I, oh, I just remember. Yeah. I mean, like this stuff, it's really difficult. Yeah. And the other thing is, is your next job negotiation is a lot harder because you're burning cash by the minute. So like if you want your next job to have better pay, more vacation, you know, more prestige, let you work from home, that kind of stuff, it's a lot easier to negotiate for those things when the potential employer knows you already have a job, right? When they know you can walk away, yeah, they're a lot easier to deal with. Whereas if they know they've got you and that you really need the job, your negotiating ability is next to nothing. Mm -hmm. Also, some companies will drag out the interview process if they know you're desperate. Uh, some of them do it even if they don't know you're desperate. It's just they yeah, take they're a just long time. crap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it takes a while sometimes. And they do that so that they can win negotiations more easily. It makes it so that <laughs> it's like what I do. Um, I used to do when I was in, I guess I could do it again because I'm in grad school. When I bought my first truck in med school, I went with my books. And like, I'd already picked out the truck I wanted and I told him how much I'd pay for it. And you know how they try to like, you know, wear you down. Well, I just yeah. got my laptop out, my books, they had free coffee. I'm like, Hey, I'm not gonna have to pay for the coffee. So I'm just, I'm just sitting there studying. The guy comes back with an offer. I'm like, no, nope, this is what I said. I go back to studying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and cause you had the leverage. You could do that. That's the thing because what I was doing was making it so that he couldn't go out and get another sale. Yeah. Whereas what they try to do is drag the process out so that you go, fine, I'll just pay the extra so I don't have to deal with it. Yeah. And this happens sometimes with companies is they try to drag the interview process out so that 
you're like, I really need the job. I'll just, I'll take the lower pay. I'll take, you know, not everything that I want. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that happens is because jumping without having a place to land, when you finally do land, you're so thankful for it that you tend to stay longer than you should at that next job. Mm-hmm. Because you remember being unemployed as being like the worst thing in the world because you were burning through your cash. Yeah. So another thing that will bite you is trying to be too much of a generalist. If you're a general software developer, you do whatever. You can find another job pretty easily. However, it's also easy to find a generalist for any job, right? Like if it just if you just need a warm body, like it's easy to get those people. It's easy to fire those people because you can get another one. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be in that dynamic for your entire career. Early on, you're going to be a bit of a generalist because you don't really know where your real strengths are until you've done it at the workplace for a little while. You kind of want to start off a little bit broad because one, it's a little bit easier to pick up on those kind of, on a broader set of skills, like not very deep, but a little bit in each thing, enough to be useful in a couple of different areas. And then you get in and yeah, when I first started at my first job, I was sort of the in-between from the API and the UI. Yeah. And, you know, doing a very, very little bit of database stuff. But mostly I was sort of going between the, you know, wherever I, I was needed. And I sort of fell into, I really liked doing the API work and the business logic and stuff like that. So that's sort of where I ended up going. Another friend of mine did the same thing. He started off doing a little bit of both and ended up going into the front end because that's partly what they needed and partly what he really enjoyed doing. So That's a way better way to play it. But the thing with being a generalist is that they typically only do well when the economy is doing well. And you know, once the economy contracts, like where it's a employer's market versus an employee's market, Mm -hmm. a lot of the generalists don't do very well because they're competing with everybody else who's desperate now to work. Yeah. So you just got to be careful about that. You have to be able to stand out from other similar developers and you want to stand out for the kind of jobs that make you happy, not the ones that you hate. Yeah. Now, while this doesn't necessarily mean specializing in a particular type of business, although over time it might, what it does mean is that you should focus on handling certain types of problems. Right. So like my specialty is, you know, give or take, dealing with modernizing legacy applications while a business is scaling up. They figured out that, hey, our stuff is old, it's crap. We need to scale up the business. We also need to modernize at the same time. That's where I come in. I've done a lot of that. Mm -hmm. I'm still working on where my specialty is. I mean, I've kind of narrowed it to certain areas, but uh, also going back to school, I'm kind of developing a specialty around that as well. So Yeah, and it'll change over time too. Yeah. I do think it's probably better to specialize in a niche or a particular industry just because it makes it easier to market yourself because you can go, hey, these are people that I know that are in this industry. You know, I've got contacts at the companies that do these things. I've got a reputation. I know the terminology so I can get the ground running coming in. It makes mm-hmm. it easier to get a job, but you can probably get a long way before you even get to that level. Yeah. You'll still be better off than the people that just do the job and go home and don't think about the long term. Basically, if you don't specialize, you're competing with everyone else you know who is also not specialized. Yeah. So 
Another mistake that a lot of people make, and this is one that Will and I have both made, is using your personal time for work without compensation. Yeah, so when you see major issues in the code base at work, especially if you really like development, you might be tempted to try and fix it on your own time simply because you enjoy the work or because you don't have to get management approval. You can just come in and go, hey, I fixed this major problem. Cool, it's gone away. And you think you look good doing that, which you do. The problem is, is that if you are willing to do this for free, you're throwing your time away, mm-hmm. right? Like there's probably better places that you could be spending that time. And also, if you do this work for a current job, when you go to your next job, you're not going to be able to show this work to a potential employer because it's proprietary. Mm -hmm. So you just lost that. You can't really prove that you did anything. This is like doing a major amount of work for free. Right. Now, if you're in the office and you've been working on a problem and on your drive home, the solution hits you. Not saying how many times this has happened to me, but a lot. And you get home and you're like, all right, I'm going to hop on for 15, 20 minutes and just put this in there. So I don't forget the next day and you end up spending a little bit of time just like you get it in there and you're like, I want to see if it works. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably okay. A little bit of that every now and then is fine and probably a a good thing. But it's when, when like Will was saying, you see a major issue and you really want to, you want to tackle it. So you tackle it in your free time. Yeah. Like over a weekend. Yeah. You know, cause that's the worst. I mean, I've done that at jobs where, you know, like I was on the clock for 40 to 50 hours, but there was another 20 that I was spending, you know, worrying about work problems or trying to fix them or watching systems, you know, because I didn't want to get a call in the middle of the night and I was checking stuff. And it's like, that's just not worth doing. Like you're not getting paid for it. Don't do it. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I had a, um, my first lead developer, the first job I had outside of working with Will was very adamant about time off. Yeah. Thing is we did occasionally have a death march. We got paid for it too. Yeah. But we we occasionally had those and he was very very adamant about your time off is your time. He's like I don't want you coming in here on Monday saying, "Hey, I spent the weekend figuring out this problem." It's like, "No, if you're out doing something Saturday and the solution hits you and you want to come home and hop on and put in just enough so you remember Monday, that's fine. It's like, but I don't want you spending your free time working on this because there's going to be times where we ask you to work over the weekend. Right. And pay you for it. You know, he's like, so when you have that free time, it's very important because he's like, I don't want you getting burnt out when you're not even getting paid for it. Yeah. And having a manager like that is phenomenal because for a lot of us, like Will said, like we love what we do and we'll get into it. Yeah. I mean, really, you're better off spending your spare time making your own things. And that includes things that have nothing to do with tech or that aren't programmed. I mean, this podcast is one of those things. Oh, yeah. Our employers don't control it. Mm -mm. I mean, there's other things like I paint, Will writes. He writes technical books too, but he also writes fiction. And, you know, we also have other hobbies that we do that are creative and, and making things. Just remember, if you work for free, you're training other people to not see your time and effort as valuable. Yeah, and worse, you're training yourself. So when you go to to negotiate for another job and they're like, oh, yeah, you're going to work 60 hours a week, 
you're not going to be in the thought process of, wait a minute, my time is worth money. What, what's my compensation for this? Yeah. It ruins your inner game if you're not careful. Also, you'd be really surprised how many job opportunities that you get through channels that have nothing to do with work. I mean, how many people have we met in other areas that they find out we're software developers? Uh, you know what's funny? I'll tell you guys this story really quickly. The night that I met my girlfriend, I had been hiking with my dog, went to go see a friend of mine at Hop Springs. It's a, a brewery, beer garden down here. And my friend was working. It was their first time being open on a Monday night. And my friend was like, hey, come in. We're dead. And so I go in. I'm sitting there just talking to her, having a beer. And these guys walk up and they, <laughs> they were talking about building a website. And we're like complaining about not knowing what they were doing. They do event planning and, and like concert planning and stuff like that. They literally needed someone to build a website for them. I talked to them for a few minutes and they invited me over to their table. Yep. So like doing the thing that I enjoy, which is you know, craft beer and stuff like that. I met these guys. Of course, while I was waiting on my beer to come back, my girlfriend's friend walked up and we got to talking and then, you know, more important... <laughs> you know, Amanda came up and I got to talking to her and I never did go over and sit with those guys and talk to them. But it's just amazing the places, if you're open to it, that you will run into things like that. Yeah. And just creating, like people pay attention when you're creating stuff in public, like people notice that. And mm -hmm. I mean, you draw all kinds of attention that will help you more than that extra few hours of work for free for somebody who doesn't care. No. Speaking of, you know, the amount of work you do, when you start out a new job, don't show them how fast you can work, right? Like don't crank that throttle all the way up because you're excited, right? It's a brand new job. You're all happy. And you're usually at the peak of your performance in the first few months of a new job. You know, people are cutting you some slack. You haven't made any enemies. Nobody has a reason to interrupt you because you don't know anything and you're excited. So you can work faster then. Those things fade over time. And you're better off, you know, setting a expectation that is a sustainable pace rather than just crazy fast mm -hmm. because you can actually maintain it. The problem here is that when you show the maximum that you're capable of, people plan to your max. Yeah. That's the thing is when you were talking about this, I was thinking what you're doing is you're setting your peak as what people expect to be your average. Right. So it's like if somebody looked at your life on Facebook versus what it actually is and they expected that out of you, you would be pretty miserable. It's the same thing mm -hmm. for most people. Although there's some people I look at and I'm like, I expect them to be a raging alcoholic and they're just actually normal. But um, <laughs> you know, like you're setting an expectation that doesn't serve you. Yeah, Your maximum capacity is not a sustainable things. So you're like your one family problem, you know, bad week, a long-term health problem, even a short-term thing. Like when I had my hernia, I know, I know my productivity dropped mm -hmm. by probably 30, 40% just because of the amount of pain I was in. Not even that. If you just have like an off day or an off week, like you're, you, you have some allergies going on and you're not sleeping well. I, I was talking with one of my coworkers about that today. She was saying, her allergies have just been messed up for the last two or three weeks. Yep, mine too. We were both talking about how like we just haven't been sleeping as well. And you know, your productivity is going to go down 
during that. And you don't want people thinking that your average productivity is what you can do at your peak. You want them to think it's your average. So when you are a little bit down, you may be a little below average or you may push yourself a little bit to get yourself back up to average. If they're expecting your peak all the time as your average, one, it's not your average because you're never going above it. Yeah. And two, when you do go below it, they think something's wrong, wrong. Yeah, they attribute it to something else. It's like not being yourself on a first date. Yeah. Right? You get a little ways into the relationship and then they find out who you really are and they don't like you. Yeah. Because you're not the person that they thought you were. Yeah, be as weird as possible on your first date. And if they stick around, you know you got to keep her. <laughs> Might be why I go out on so many first dates. Well, used to, I should say. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, be careful. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, you're going to get held more accountable for a drop in performance to the level of everyone else than you would be if you had just been at everybody else's level. Mm -hmm. The other thing that'll happen is if you overperform early on, you'll make frenemies in the office. Like you'll have people that act like your friend to your face and they'll backstab you yeah. because you're a threat. You just got to kind of be careful about that dynamic and it will follow you to your next job mm -hmm. if you're not careful because people go, oh yeah, he came in strong and did well and then the bottom just dropped out of his productivity and we attribute it to this, this, and this. Yeah. The next one is one that uh, I'm pretty sure we've both had to kind of learn the hard way a little bit. And that is... Yeah the mistake of being unable to quantify the value that you create. Yeah. If you don't have a good idea of the value you create, the overage will be captured by someone else. Someone is going to claim that value. Yeah. And there's information asymmetry anyway when you're negotiating for any job. And that makes the negotiation harder. But if you don't even know what kind of value you can bring to the table you are far worse off than somebody else who does know. And a lot of people tend to err on the side of caution as far as the amount of value that they create. They think, okay, I make X dollars, so therefore X dollars plus, you know, 30,000 or something, that's probably what my value is. And, you know, it's probably more like double. The company's got a good business model. And you want to know that because you want to take some of that. Yeah. Companies really rely on people doing this. I mean, now, granted, if you were paid for every bit of value that you created, you wouldn't have a company to work at, right? They are going to take some out of that. That's just the way it is. You're paying for the stability. Look at it that way and go on with life. Well, I mean, that's the thing. You need to create more value than you take or else you are not valuable to the company and they'll find someone else. Right. Unless you're way up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on top of that, knowing the value you provide will often help you see trouble coming further out. And let's say that you realize you provide $200,000 worth of value and you're paid $100,000. So your real value to the company is $100,000. You don't usually know this without understanding the business model. Right. And so if you understand the business model, a lot of times you can argue for things that make the company more money rather than focusing just narrowly on the tech. It's like, okay, well, we can switch to Angular for this instead of whatever framework. Instead of saying that, you go, hey, what if we did this and we cover mobile devices better and it solves this business problem? Now we make more money. The tech is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. It's easier to get your way. And it's also easier to provide more value and to be obvious about it so that people are more inclined to give you more money. I remember this one meeting I was in. I got pulled from the project I was on when we had a developer leave. And this, the project he had been working on was almost completed. They just needed me for 
a couple of sprints to just finish it up. But they were having trouble because the business team that they were working with, they didn't understand the tech, I think. And they didn't understand, well, they're like, we have to do this, but we don't understand like the why and the things like that. We're just told, it's been told, push down, we have to do this. And so I remember one of the first meetings I was in with them, I just... I said something and I saw the light bulb go off. And it was something basically to the effect of, I need this information from you because what I'm going to do is these things that is going to make it so that you're not spending six or seven hours a week doing this by hand, but instead you can do it in one hour and then spend the rest of your time working on these other things that you have already told me in this meeting, you want to do, but you don't have time to do. Yeah. Just by paying attention for a couple of meetings, this was right around the time I started realizing that the way I was talking to people was wrong. Like I might be super excited about the newest tech, but they couldn't care less. And in fact, they're resistant to it most of the time. But if you put it in those terms, like you were talking about, where it's like, here's how it's going to benefit you. Like the eyes lit up and suddenly we got buy-in. Like it was still a little bit of a struggle, but it was just so much easier after that point. Yeah, and I mean, I've left a job because I understood the business model and I understood that, hey, they can't get the clients that they want to get making the money that they're making now. They can't get enough developers in there to build the product that they have to build to get the clients that they want to get. And I was seeing the workload increase and I'm like, I know exactly what's going on. I'm out. Yeah. And that's nice because after that, I heard more and more bad stuff going on. And the company, you know, I don't think it really got in trouble, but it didn't go where I wanted to go with my career. So finally, the last mistake that developers tend to make is to not understand how your boss is evaluated. If you're only making yourself look good, it is going to be a lot harder to get promoted. If your actions and reliability help your manager look good to their boss, then it makes it easier for them to get promoted and then you to get promoted. It's, it's an upward thing for everyone. Right. You know, honestly, the best seat in the house for you is their chair. <laughs> you know, like if you want to get promoted, like taking your boss's job, that's probably, you know, where you want to go and they're still your boss because they're now the level above you. Like, That is such a great scenario. It's way better than anything (laughs) else you can do. The other thing about understanding how your manager is being evaluated also tells you how you're really being evaluated, right? Like people tell you crap all the time about, well, we evaluate you by how quick you can get stuff done, but then you're getting blamed for all the bugs. And it turns out like they're, they're not really putting the emphasis on getting stuff done. They're putting the emphasis on the bugs. Well, if you know that manager is getting evaluated based off of how many bugs come through the team, you know what to focus on regardless of whether they lied to you or not. Yeah. If you make them look good, it's really a lot easier to ask for raises and it's a lot easier to avoid headaches from them. Yeah. If you make them look bad, but meet what you thought the performance expectations are, you're going to be disappointed. And deeply surprised. Yeah. The other thing is you do this really well. You make your boss look good. And if they leave, they may hire you at the next place they work. Yeah. There's a couple of guys that I've worked with multiple times at jobs here in Nashville. I mean, I've been on three teams with one guy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's just, it's pretty common. Like I was reliable. Mm -hmm. I knew they were good to work with too. So it was easy for them to convince me to come on board. It really helps a lot. So guys, we can damage the quality of our careers, even with the best of intentions. In fact, that's the primary way that it's done. There are a lot of sneaky things that you probably haven't thought about that can hurt your career and your income. And there are probably even some that we haven't thought of to discuss with you. However, this list should give you an idea of the kind of situations that can really hurt you. Hopefully, you will be able to avoid these problems in your future career. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? I just want to add, you you need to be really careful about the way that other people perceive you just in general. We saw this at the beginning of the podcast episode, right? We had somebody write in and say, we really appreciate that you don't curse and you don't get into political discussions you know, on the podcast. Well, that also applies in regular life. I've talked to a lot of hiring managers, and one of the things I've heard from a number of them is the first things they check is they check social media. They look for public profiles. They look for anything where you've got your name attached and they see how you act. So if you're constantly getting into like political flame wars and doing all this kind of stuff, like it comes around. If you're constantly being a jerk towards your coworkers, it'll get around. Even in a market that you think is huge, like Nashville is a big market. It's not that big. I've got a list of people that I will never work with because I've heard bad things about them from multiple people. You know, there's one guy that, you know, I, went to lunch with a former coworker who took a job at a place that I used to work. And this guy worked there and he had worked at the place where I was currently working before. Long story. But anyway, we go to lunch and within 30 seconds of meeting the guy, I hated his guts because of him being such a jerk. I have not had that much of a negative religious experience with anybody in a very long time. But I guarantee you, y'all, he's on my list. I will not work with that guy I look and I see where he's working periodically to make sure. (laughs) And there's a few others like that. Word gets around. So you need to question whether it's really worth having a flame war about any of this stuff in a public forum. Because yes, I mean, the point of doing it in a public forum is to have a public audience. But thing is, is you now have a public audience and your job is not to be a politician. Your job is to be a software developer and you need to pick which one you want to do. Because it's really easy to completely screw yourself over, over a very, very long period of time because the internet's forever. So I just want to issue a very strong word of caution. Don't do that. And I know it's, it's so cathartic to be able to just like rip somebody a new one in a public forum, but it will backfire on you if you're not careful. So that's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. 
Thanks for listening. See you next time.